1: This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And by the way, uh, if you're interested in subscribing to Chen's letter, now is the time because during the first 10 business days of this month, Chen will be accepting new subscribers. So in order to sign up for either Chen's letter or my letter, you go to MiningStocks.com. MiningStocks.com, put your name on the waiting list for Chen, and then uh, subscribe. There is room for new subscribers this uh, this uh, particular quarter. Uh, so if you're interested, now is the best time. Uh, to sign up for what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making uh, it uh, one of the top shows on the business channel at Voice America. I want to also thank our sponsors uh, for this show, uh, for making this show economically viable. They are Caden Resources, Go Gold Resources, and Uranium Energy Corporation. I'd like to encourage you to send your comments, uh, criticisms, questions, what have you. Send it to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Well, we have a very busy schedule, so let's get right into today's show. I've titled it, "The Lying." To they Are Lying to Us, Gold Bugs' Hearts Are Beating Faster. Well, first of all, uh, we're going to have Gene Epstein, John Rubino, and David Jensen joining us again, all three returning. They've been with us many times in the past. I had hoped to have Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity with me, but he is in the middle of a move from Virginia to Ron Paul's hometown in Texas, and so he is not available again this week. But because I do value Ron Paul Institute so, uh, so much for its truthful uh, source of information regarding American foreign policy, I, and I value Daniel and his work, I would encourage you to go to the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Uh, don't wait for Daniel to come back on this show. I expect to be back soon, but there's plenty of information there, I think very, very important information, uh, at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Now, more specifically related to today's show, our Machiavellian president, Barack Obama, said, and I quote, follow me and I will make you great, end of quote. Writing for Barron's uh, a number of months in the past, Gene Epstein said what Obama was really saying, in fact, was more like, follow me, we can be like Greece, end of quote. Well, in fact, that was a heading of an article that Gene wrote for uh, Barons, and we'll be talking to him a little bit more about that. Uh, in today's uh, in today's show, like our foreign policy, America's economic policy is an absolute disaster, and it is very much the same as the disastrous failed policy of Japan over the past thirty years. Gene Epstein will be joining me in just a couple of minutes to share some of his thoughts about the disastrous direction of both the Japanese and the U.S. economies, given current policies, uh, which in fact are making things worse. Uh, but, in fact, also what is making things worse is the aging demographics of both countries, Japan and the United States. At about half past the hour, author, blogger, and economist John Rubino will be uh, with me to talk about the economic lies being told to Americans in an attempt to manage our animal spirits. You know, we don't have to worry about our balance sheets. If we're just happy and we spend money, we can be prosperous. Well, that's the Keynesian way. But manipulation of the minds of Americans is key is very much a key component to keeping us all down, I like to say, down on the mushroom farm where they are feeding us fecal matter and keeping us in the dark. John will help us understand what the truth is regarding the actual as opposed to the fantasized U.S. economy that statisticians in Washington dream up for us. And I want to ask John about an essay that he recently wrote titled, Gold Bugs Hearts Are Beating Faster. The implication is that the gold and gold share industry is in the process of waking up from its two- or three-year bear market. Well, I have to tell you, given my vested interest in the gold markets and the gold shares, I really hope that John is right uh, on that score. In the second hour, exclusively at jtaylormedia.com. David Jensen joins me to talk about a growing shortage of platinum group metals and the games that are apparently being played in those precious metals, uh, very similar to what are allegations of games being played in gold and silver. And uh, John uh, or David will uh, explain why uh, that is uh, very possibly very bullish for gold and silver as well as platinum and palladium. David also has some very valuable insights, I think, into the growing push among the international bankers to use special drawing rights, known as SDRs, uh, in the global monetary system and why they are being proposed once again. I remember very well as a young man in the early 1970s when SDRs were supposed to take the place of gold. They're really just another form of paper market. But uh, I I also want to ask David uh, to explain the logic behind a zero-hedge article recently that suggested that the, over, the over-hypothecation of gold for loans in China is actually bullish, not bearish, for the gold markets. A lot of people, including Chen Lin, I know, uh, was of the opinion that it could be very bearish for gold. Finally, in the second hour of today's show at jaytaylormedia.com, I will provide some of my own thoughts about changes in Portugal over the past 30 years since I first started visiting that country almost on an annual basis. I will also talk about the uh, trader banker, that's traitor Banker, the BIS, which is scolding the United States and other countries for their artificially low interest rates and uh, quantitative easing, warning of the destruction that that policy is causing the capital markets. And also, I want to talk to you about a new gold royalty company that I am very excited about, uh, and I will share some of the views of Tocqueville Gold Mining analyst Doug Grow uh, about that as well. Uh, that particular stock, Doug uh, was not able to come on the show today, but I do expect to have him on sometime in the near future for his, his insights into the gold mining industry. The TokoVille Gold Mining, uh, the Tocoville Gold Fund, is certainly uh, one of the top gold funds in the world, and Doug Grow is the number two person at that fund behind uh, John Hathaway. Well, we do have a very busy schedule, so let's get right to our first commercial so that we can come back. And uh, as soon as we get back from the break, I expect to have Gene Epstein with me uh, to talk about uh, the issues, the economic issues that Japan and the United States are facing, not only in light of enormous amounts of debt, but also in light of a declining, well, let's say an aging population, fewer workers, fewer workers. Fewer people that contribute to the supply side of the economy, and more and more people who are consuming uh, the limited supply. Not a good recipe if it's out of balance, so we look forward to talk to Gene Epstein as soon as we come back from the break. Don't go away. I'll be right back.
0: When it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
3: caden resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in mexico the company's flagship el barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in mexico The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.
0: Go Gold Resources, considered a buy by several well-known analysts, is soon to be Mexico's newest gold and silver producer, with two impressive developments, Go Gold's Paral Tailings Project, with first pour anticipated in May, is expected to produce 1.8 million ounces of silver equivalent per year, generating a steady 12-year cash flow. Santa Gertrudis, a past-producing gold mine, could potentially be put back into production by mid-2015. Advancing quickly and led by a team of experienced mine builders, Go Gold is one to watch. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business.
1: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your
2: host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Gene Epstein, who usually joins me in the first Tuesday of uh, each month as he uh, heads up a a wonderful event in New York City at the General Society Library, 20 West 44th Street, uh, and that is uh, called the New York City Junto Meetings. They're an excellent uh, event an excellent forum, and Gene heads it up and has done a remarkably great job of, uh, of making that a very, very valuable time, uh, two, three hours or so that are spent there with some great guests, and this week's guest, uh, is, or this month's guest, I should say, is Tyler Cohen. Uh, he's a professor of economics at George Mason University, uh, and so uh, I want to welcome Gene. Thank you, Gene, for joining me again. Sure. Happy to be back. Thank you, Gene. Uh, so, listen, uh, it, it, tell us a little bit before we get to your uh, what I want to talk today about. I want to talk to you about a presentation that you made in Japan called Japan, the U.S., uh, and the Challenge of Demographics. But before we get to that, just very briefly, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about Tyler Cohen mm-hmm. uh, and what he might talk to the New York City Junto Group about this coming Thursday.
4: Well, uh, Tyler is a, uh, as you mentioned, economist at uh, George Mason. Uh, he does a very active uh, and popular blog, and uh, he's a prolific writer, uh, done a number of books. Uh, he's going to uh, go over some of the ideas that he's propounded in his books. His most recent book was called Average is Over. Um, it's about, uh, it's an attempt to project the future. Uh, and uh, then he's going to solicit questions and and uh, from the audience and Uh, So essentially, it's going to be an interactive evening, um, and uh, Tyler is very fast in his feet, interesting, and very knowledgeable, so we're all looking forward to it.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to somebody that can give me some optimism here, Gene. Average is over. Powering America beyond mm-hmm. the age of the great stagnation, and I have to ask you, in light of your presentation in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, there is quite a mountain to climb. It would seem to get over average, over that hilltop yeah. called average. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, uh, in your presentation, it was titled "Japan, the U.S. and the Challenge of Debt and Demographics." Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, in that presentation, you uh, showed the cover page of Barrons uh, that related to the article that you called that you wrote for Barrons, uh, the feature article several months back follow me we can be like Greece mm-hmm. uh, can you summarize that article uh, for our listeners perhaps and just tell us a little bit uh, you know what kind of response did you receive from uh, some of the uh, communist economists like Paul Krugman oh
4: yeah. well uh is- I, I are starting at the beginning then, uh, an article that prompted my being invited uh, to speak at the International House in uh, Japan, a very prestigious place, and um, I was certainly flattered they asked me uh-huh. to speak in Japan about uh, the issues that are going on in their country because uh, they are eerily parallel to what goes on in the U.S. Uh, I published a cover story, as you mentioned, um, that uh, spoke about uh, the potential for Obama and for what essentially Obama stands for and what he's moving us in the direction of although uh, for me to single out Obama um, is, uh, is is only in context only because he's president now sure I believe that you know George uh, W Bush his predecessor also moved in us in that direction sure. And what was that the direction of Greece and what does Greece mean well Greece, uh, clearly experienced a fiscal crisis because it had, it could not uh, pay off its debt. Now that rather Incendiary analogy uh, brought uh, raised uh, hackles of Paul Krugman, uh, and uh, I know some other prominent blogger whose name escapes me. Um, he uh, he said that this is you know yellow journalism uh, to even suggest that the U.S. economy uh, could ever be like Greece. Uh, I wrote a response online. Um, pointing out that Krugman, as usual, probably had not bothered to read the article and probably just mm-hmm. looked at the headline. Had he done so, he would have noticed that the analogy with Greece did not originate with me. Um, I duly credited uh, the analogy to the uh, staid non Congressional Budget Office, a very <laughs> establishment organization that had written a, a paper, uh, generated a paper from one of their economists pointing out uh, that Uh, the fiscal crisis that was looming over the long term uh, by the 2020s or 2030s for the U.S. could be similar to the fiscal crisis in Greece. Um, So that's where the incendiary analogy came from. Again, um, if the Congressional Budget Office is worried, I think we should all be
2: concerned about that sort of possibility. Absolutely, yeah. uh, and uh, I guess Mr. Krugman picks and chooses who he decides to uh, to pay attention to and to <laughs> revere. You yeah. know, Ian MacAvity is on this show frequently, and and he likes to talk about uh, the United States. And speaking of demographics, is uh, is very quickly moving to a country. Uh, in which more people vote for a living than work for a living. So I'd like to ask you, yeah. Gene, could you uh, – I don't think we're going to have time – I know we're not going to have time to talk about everything I'd like to talk mm-hmm. to you, uh, hear, hear about from you on Japan and the United States, but focused on the United States perhaps a little more than Japan. Sure. What can you tell our listeners about the demographics and what that's going to mean in terms of, uh, of our economic future?
4: well uh, uh, work uh, work versus vote for a living is actually uh, a very good uh, way of putting it, and in fact, I think it has an even deeper meaning, which uh, i 'd love to elaborate on, but most specifically, of course, it means uh, that um, the baby boomers um, who are the oldest uh, is now sixty seven the youngest is uh, is about forty nine uh, they are uh, going to reach critical mass uh, by the 2020s, 2030s. They are beginning to retire and beginning to cash in on, uh, on elder care entitlements that include Medicaid and Medicare especially. Uh, Social Security is actually a relative sideshow financially in that Social Security is part of the problem, but the biggest problem is Medicare and Medicaid. And uh, when uh, they, uh, they, they won't be working for a living, they will be indeed voting for a living, and they'll be voting uh, for those, uh, for those entitlements. And those, that, that, uh, debt and demographic, uh, burden is what the Congressional Budget Office warns us about that, uh, that we could go by the way of Greece. But I want to elaborate on one point, you know, it's actually, um, Richard Epstein, uh, classical liberal, uh, uh legal scholar who points out that essentially that problem of of voting uh, for a living rather than uh, working for a living Mm -hmm. is inherent in the progressive income tax, that if there's a perception, and of course the perception reflects reality, that when you vote for entitlements, uh, you don't pay for them, that when you Mm -hmm. vote for certain government programs, you don't pay for them, Uh, the rich pay for them, Mm -hmm. Uh, then then that creates a, a distortion in politics, and That's, in in fact, the principal reason why Richard Epstein favors a, uh, argues for a flat tax mm-hmm. that, of course a flat tax can have different meanings but in that case the flat tax means, simply means that everybody pays the same percentage so that in everybody's perception um, if, you, if, if you vote for something you also end up having to pay your share of it and I, I think that's a powerful argument that, that Richard Epstein no relation by the way to me um, has made and so if that's part of the problem as well but indeed clearly um, the baby boomers Vote. older people tend uh, to vote more than younger people, and uh, that's going to create what, you know, Lawrence Kartlikoff, for example, I'm hardly the only person who's pointed out these problems. Peter Peterson, by the way, has also been mm-hmm. very eloquent about them. Uh, so I'm almost a Johnny-come-lately about the obvious uh, demographic
2: and debt time bomb uh, that is threatening the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, and then, of course, uh, when the burden falls on the rich, what you do is, is just another means of destruction of capital as well, I, I mm-hmm. would imagine. But another thing, Gene, yeah. is that uh, one thing that Ron Paul pointed out in the past, that, you know, actually we wouldn't have to have any taxes at all because we can print infinite amounts of money, at least the United States can up to now. Uh, so what about that argument? I guess the flat tax makes sense, and actually uh, Putin in Russia has a 17% flat tax. looks awfully good to me. Yeah, <laughs> Well, that's
4: right. I mean, that free market uh, activist, uh, Mr. Putin. Um, indeed, uh, that that uh, that sort of irony can arise. Uh, I assume that Ron Paul meant that facetiously, because, in fact. When, uh, when I, among some, at least who did read my article um, uh, about analogizing it with uh, US with Greece, the critics, of course, were certainly right to say, well, if I'm picking up on the, on the Congressional Budget Office analogy, I must also believe it, and therefore, intellectually, I'm responsible for it. They were right about that. Um, mm-hmm. But they pointed out that the difference between the US and Greece is that Greece had to pay its debt in euros yeah. and could not print euros. Right. But in our case, we've got no problem. We have a debt denominated in dollars, and we can simply print dollars. So therefore, uh, why compare us to Greece? Uh, we can just easily print our way out of the problem. Um, that, uh, of course, is a truly disastrous solution, as Rand Paul would be the first to recognize. That's sure. just putting, pouring oil on the flame. Uh, that is another kind of partial default. That could truly start a panic. If foreigners who are holding uh, foreign currencies the Chinese, the Japanese, others find that the U.S. is actively devaluing its own currency, and that means then that the debt that they are hold- that the foreigners are holding in in dollar-denominated nations, uh, is collapsing in value. That could truly cause a panic if if we resort to the printing press,
2: as indeed we might. Well, indeed, and of course, Gene, uh, in our fractional reserve banking system, in our fiat monetary system as opposed to a gold-backed system in which you actually have an asset-based money, we know that uh, debt is the raw material from which money is created. So if you print more money in our current system, you're creating more debt. And as, as I look at charts of total debt in the United States relative to GDP, total debt is growing exponentially almost, and GDP is growing, if at all. Two uh, percent, something like that, right so uh, this this would seem to be a disaster, so even you can 't print your way out unless uh, uh, mm-hmm. it doesn 't seem like that 's an easy uh, really a, a successful solution in the long run either. Mm-hmm. Well,
4: no, it's not going to be a successful solution, certainly, but it is indeed a solution. As a matter of fact, uh, Alan Greenspan uh, uh, wrote uh, in his uh, in, in his own in his memoir, *The Age of Turbulence*, uh, published in early 2008. Uh, that, um, he feared, uh, that, uh, by the time, he feared that, that, that inflation could become, uh, could go back to double digits, uh, uh, by the tw- late 2020s, early 2030s. It was one, the one good nugget in that book of his, by the way, in which, he pointed out that, uh, that the disinflationary forces that, 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 uh, that, didn't, that provided a distance to money printing, uh, which is cheap labor uh, all over the globe, that would probably be more than played out by the 2030s. And then uh, the intergenerational transfer of uh, elder care entitlements would explode, and the temptation uh, to print money would be great, and uh, there, would be, uh, there could indeed be a, re- a return to uh, a double-digit inflation. Greenspan, of course, didn't even know the half of it, because clearly uh, the it's not just uh, double-digit price inflation that's the problem. It's the destabilization
2: of our domestic and then consequently world economy that could result from that sort of action. No, no doubt about it, and yeah. that's, uh, it's still with us today, Gene. I believe that we haven't really overcome the problems of 2008, 2009. You know, one of the no. interesting things I picked up from your, uh, from your PowerPoint presentation uh, was you pointed out very rightly, I think, that there is a structural political flaw that gets in the way of fiscal responsibility on the part of mm. our policymakers. Can you perhaps talk about that a little bit to our listeners? well the uh i, th- I think you you're, you're referring to uh to what
4: i, I cited as, uh, as as public choice theory uh, and uh, yes. it's it's vital. It really is uh of course uh especially important for people to grasp it it's uh I think one of the key pillars uh that progressives rely on uh it's really there are really two pillars they rely on, but one of them of course, is the idea uh that uh, that 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 uh, the government consists of philosopher kings, and that mm-hmm. if we if we have a few uh bad apples in government, you know George w. Bush is of course regarded as a bad guy, then we have Obama coming along, or then we, you know, we had Kennedy, or we had uh, potentially Johnson. So there's always some philosopher King coming along who's going to do something responsible. Uh, but of course, uh, the, 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 I mean, the, there are wonderful people also in business. The difference between business and, and government is really that everyone uh, in business, as well as in government, as the public choice theory people point out, um, Operates out of a certain amount of healthy self-interest, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why the was Jim Buchanan, who was the uh, principal our, uh, designer of the public interest theory. Uh, that's why he called uh, the progressive view uh, the called public interest theory. Uh, politics without romance, that mm-hmm. it's politics without romance, because it doesn't uh, imagine that when people go into government, they suddenly become transformed into wonderful, selfless, uh, philosopher, yes. king, human beings. <laughs> They're just ordinary people. It's not, just, it's not that we necessarily say that Obama or George W. Bush or any of them are evil. Sometimes they do evil things, but it, we don't. we can leave that alone. It's just that. They are politicians, and they clearly then are acting in their self-interest, and they're, and, and they're for that reason, only have their idea on the short term. Uh, they want to spend. Uh, they they want to glorify their own administrations. And, of course, when the bill comes due, it will only be years after they leave office. That's right. why they will naturally act irresponsibly. In, in business, of course, Certainly in, in, a, in, a, in a publicly traded corporation, if a CIA, CEO starts making, starts wasting money and, and, uh, and piling up debt on the company's balance sheet, its stock will be instantly punished. And the CEO, of course, who owned, probably owns stock options and, and who has a stake in keeping his job in any case, will feel the heat right away because the mechanisms are in place uh, to make sure that his self-interest is allied to the interests of the company. That doesn't happen on the level of government uh, because there, there, there are only us taxpayers and we can easily be confused. We're disorganized. We, we can't get together. We can't simply short the company's stock. There is no such thing because USA Inc. Uh, does not trade uh, publicly uh, on any stock right. exchange
2: right well gene uh, i 'm just thinking maybe that 's one of the arguments for one term uh, one term uh, one term elected officials instead of having really? uh, you know looking yeah. for re election and so forth but anyway yeah. um, uh, the, the other thing i I have to ask you about um, where does this all end? We only have a couple of minutes. But, you know, the, clearly what we're doing is printing more and more money faster yeah. and faster. It's creating, I think, a bigger problem. We have mm-hmm. some relief, a little bit of a, of a of economic growth perhaps, but very, very mm-hmm. minuscule because there are structural problems, I think, in the economy that are mm-hmm. not allowing us to really grow as we once did. So how can we get over this this hump with about mm-hmm. two minutes left? How can we get over this hump? And the second is uh who's worse off and we didn't even have a chance to address Japan at all but Japan has many of the same problems which country is worse off Japan or the United States and how can we get out of this mess gene with 2 minutes well <laughs> Well,
4: Japan, uh, Japan is worse off because uh, they're facing the problem right now—a problem the U.S. Uh, will be facing in about ten years. Uh, mm-hmm. So they are worse off for that reason. Um, and and uh, as for how we get out of this mess, well, we've got a lot of messes. By the way, you conceded too much when you talked about a little bit of growth. Well, as you know, there was a contraction in the first quarter, which right. quite disconcerting, um, of two point nine percent annualized. Uh, now. Uh, if you are correct, and I think uh, you, you probably, you and I probably have a disagreement over the crystal ball, if you are correct that, uh, that we're headed for financial disaster, as many have argued, whom I respect, uh, that this is going to happen over the next two or three years, we probably won't get out of it. I, I'm more optimistic, I believe, mm-hmm. that we'll, we'll inch along with slower growth uh, over the next uh, decade or so. Uh, and uh, then uh, I believe that potentially certain radical forces uh, might overtake uh, what's sinking us down. And those radical forces would be, briefly, uh, the free market revolution in medical care that is taking mm-hmm. place in this country. Probably have no more time left. So
2: Well, uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, unfortunately, we don't have much of any time left. But I would just yeah. say perhaps Tyler Cohen, yeah. uh, professor of economics at George Mason, who will be speaking at yeah. the New York City Junto, Gene, you'll be heading that up again as you do such a remarkably good job. Maybe he'll have some some more optimism for us along the lines you're just speaking of? Yes, perhaps he will. All right. Well, let's hope so. And uh, I want to thank you very much, Gene, for your time. I'm sorry to cut you short because no, I know you have so much more. Uh, you know, folks, if you come to the New York City Junto, if you live in the New York City area, you'll have you'll hear a lot of Gene's ideas and his wisdom, along with a lot of other uh, folks that are uh, that are there uh, and the key speakers that are always excellent. Uh, thank you very much, Gene, for being with us once again. Well, folks, don't go away because coming up next, John Robino will talk about how the U.S. economic statisticians are spinning lies and half-truths on a number of fronts, so don't go away. We'll uh, be right back to talk to John, and he also has some things to say about the gold markets. He thinks uh, that we're in the process of turning uh, upward again after a two- or three-year bear market, so don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rabino.
0: Hayden Resources
3: is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, once again, a good friend of mine, John Rubino. He runs the popular financial website, dollarcollapse.com, and I would strongly urge you, to go there, to avail yourself to some very excellent economic insights from John and others. Uh, He is uh, a co-author with Gold Money's James Turk of the uh, collapse of the dollar and how to profit from it. And uh, more recently, he and James also teamed up to write a a second book called The Money Bubble, What to Do Before It Pops. And John is also the author of a a, a number of other uh, books, Clean Money, Picking Winners in the Green Tech Boom, uh, that was in, in 2008. He wrote another one, How to Profit from the Coming Real Estate Bust in 2003. It wasn't that timely. Uh, and then he wrote another one, Main Street, Not Wall Street, in 1998. And he also uh, has written for a number of prestigious publications uh, and currently writes for the CFA magazine. Uh, welcome, John. It's good to have you back again. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Really good to talk to you again. Uh, You know, I I would just say that people, Dollar Collapse is an excellent site to go to. Uh, You wrote several things uh, I want to talk to you about today. One is uh, the government's less than forthright statistics uh, concerning unemployment and gross domestic product. Uh, We've talked uh, with John Williams on this show about this in the past. Uh, Can you uh, perhaps pass along your thoughts on on this topic?
5: Yeah, well, by by the way, John Williams is really the go-to guy for this kind of thing, Uh, and he's uh, breaking down the government official statistics and coming up with more realistic versions of them, and the realistic versions are terrifying, frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. On on unemployment, for instance, uh, the U.S. has been reporting a steady decline in the unemployment rate over the last few years, and now it's down in the six percent range, which is really good. You know, that's uh, that's about as good as we've been able to hope for for the last. Yeah, we were of over ten percent at one point. There yeah, we were. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and uh, you know, it looks like we're heading in the right direction, but um, that number is is created in a way that uh, is so inappropriate that it amounts to a lie. Mm-hmm. At, at this point, because what, what the government does is, say you lose your job and you, uh, you, you just can't find another job and you get disgusted and just stop looking. Well, the government takes you out of the statistics then. They no longer count you as part of the workforce. Mm-hmm. And so the the number of people who are working is divided by the number of people who um, are in the workforce, and uh, if the workforce gets smaller, that makes the unemployment rate look right. smaller. And so you that's know. happening on a, a vast scale right now as people drop mm-hmm. out of the
2: workforce because they uh, either they retire or they just flat out can't find a job and just give up looking. Yeah. So, John, but, let, let me just, let me just uh, stop you there for a second. It is my understanding that when we compare current statistics with those of the Great Depression, in fact, they didn't count unemployment the same way. They actually looked at able-bodied people at that time. Which is what they should um, look at, because right. I mean, if you can work,
5: you generally want to work want to in work, this yeah. world, right? right. Sure. And, uh, and, and so if we calculated unemployment the same way today as we did back then, the, the rate would be somewhere around 23% in the U.S. and rising. Mm-hmm. So we would be looking at a depression-level unemployment Right now, after right. five years of um, a quote-unquote recovery. Right. And the world would look like a very
2: different place if the, the biggest, most powerful economy was in a depression. Right, which it is, essentially. Yeah, yeah. We're just but, not recognizing and We have to keep the animal spirits up there, John.
3: Yeah. You know, we can't get
2: depressed. <laughs> we can't call it a depression. We can't look at reality. We have to keep the animal spirits up there so people will keep spending and going into debt further, right, to keep things going.
5: Yeah, that's, that's probably the motivation for, for a lot of these um, statistics that can only be called fictitious right now. Mm-hmm. You know, GDP is another one that just came out um, a, a few days ago and showed a, a pretty dramatic drop in first quarter GDP. GDP is the, the size of the economy, the amount of spending that's going on out there. And it, it uh, fell, according to the government statistics, by 2.9%, at a 2.9% rate in the first quarter. But that's, when you look at how great. they got that number... Yeah, it's even much worse because they used an inflation number to adjust GDP uh, of only 1.2%. In other words, they were saying that uh, the current inflation rate is averaging about 1.2% a year. And... uh, If you compare that, 1.2% to home prices, which are up 10%, and beef is 9%, and eggs are 5%, and oranges, 22%, and a lot of other things that we buy day to day are up dramatically more than 1.2%. So probably the real inflation rate is much, much higher. And when you deflate GDP by that more realistic number, you get something like a, a five or six percent decline in the size of the economy.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's again, that's deflation level. That's big. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's really um, big. You know, you know, John. When I was young, uh, and that was a long time ago, I remember well, they used to talk about inflation in terms of what it costs. Uh, To keep uh, and to take care of a family of four, to feed a family of four, keep a roof over their heads, you know, the basics in, in life and what you have to have to stay alive. I don't, they don't look at it the same way anymore, do they? No they, they uh, since the 1980s have begun
5: playing a lot of statistical tricks with yeah. inflation, where if something goes up, you know one thing goes up, they take it out of the equation right and, uh, and, and that 's called substitution, where they assume right. that well if steak gets expensive then we 'll just switch to hamburger, but of course you 're no longer measuring uh, a constant standard of living when you do that right because most right. people would consider eating steak um, uh, an aspect of a higher standard of living than eating hamburger and but they do this over and over again with uh, with anything that goes up um, to the point where it becomes kind of an outlier, they just take mm-hmm. it out. And then when, when products improve <clears throat> in quality, they make an adjustment for that. They call that hedonic adjustment. And that's, that's so subjective. that right? yeah. it, it gives the government a huge amount of leeway in which to play games with these numbers. And of course, they always play games in ways that favor a lower inflation rate. You know you never see them making adjustments that lead to a higher inflation rate and why is that because uh, a higher inflation rate is bad for the guys in charge and a lower inflation rate makes it look like the people in charge are doing a great job of managing the dollar mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 According to John Williams at Shadow Stats, uh, the gap now between the way we used to calculate inflation back in the 1970s and the way we do now is six or seven percent a year. Mm-hmm. So we would be up near double-digit inflation rates if we just continued to calculate inflation the way we did back in the days of Jimmy Carter. And again, you know, the world would be a very different place if the. Uh, The world's reserve currency was being inflated away at a seven or eight or nine percent rate. You know that Mm -hmm. there would be absolute chaos in the global financial system. Nobody would buy bonds under those circumstances. Certainly not at three percent, like like the current markets um, pretend give yeah. you a real rate of return still
2: yeah. right. and uh, so yeah well, uh, if, if we were telling the truth the world would be a much darker place right now well would it or wouldn't it John I wonder because on the one hand if we had constantly told the truth and not tried to deceive ourselves through all this period of time there would not have been this sort of euphoria these bubbles that have popped up in different economy and different parts of the economy the housing bubble for example I think the bond bubble now the stock market bubble uh, you know we, we have an economy that is basically not it, it, we have a mindset i like to keep i like to say that the, the government wants to keep us down on the mushroom farm, keep us in the dark essentially and and not allow us to know what 's really going on and in the short run i think you 're right that you know if people were to really wake up now and understand the dismal situation that we 're in, uh, they would abruptly change their behavior i think uh, and and that would would cause a readjustment that would be very painful, but I think at the same time could be would be very productive long-term. Do you agree or disagree with that? Oh,
5: yeah. If we'd been telling the truth all along, we wouldn't
2: have gotten into a lot of the trouble that we've gotten into.
5: Right. right. But from the point of view, of the guys in charge right now, for them to suddenly start telling the truth would would be very bad for their careers and their (laughs) reputations and their personal fortunes. You know, It'd probably be good for a lot of us. It 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 might be great for the rest of us. It may or may not. Who knows for sure. But let me ask you, though. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, in the the long run, it definitely
2: would be better for us. But uh, in the short run, there would be a lot of pain involved. Right. And nobody wants to take that pain. Okay, John, no one wants to take the pain. We keep printing money. As soon as the stock market goes down a little bit, uh, or as soon as the in- talk of interest rates or, or one thing or another, uh, the stock market goes down. David uh, 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 David Stockman says the market throws a hissy fit, and it gets more money pumped into the system again. We have a stock market that is not reflecting that negative 2.9% GDP growth. The stock market has not been as strong as it was, but the equity market is still... Uh, is still it's still looking pretty strong and pretty stable at this point of view. You know, you passed on an article to me, Rise in Legal Insider Selling Raises Yellow Flag. Now, generally, it's been my understanding, John, that when we come near an end of a bull market, the insiders, the guys that really know what's going on in the fundamentals of their company, are looking to exit, looking to get out. Is that what's happening now? Is that what this article is about? Yeah, Jay. The, the,
5: our stock market is essentially fake, and there are two pieces of insider activity going on that, that explains it. One is corporations are borrowing huge amounts of money, absolutely unprecedented amounts of money. They're, they're on a pace in, in the U.S. for a trillion dollars of new debt to be issued this year. And they're using a lot of that money to buy back their stock, And so what happens is they they leverage the corporation, they buy back the stock, and um, current earnings are then spread over fewer shares of stock, and it makes Mm -hmm. earnings per share go up, which makes the stock price go up. Mm-hmm. and that's good for the guys running the companies because their performance is judged generally on the stock price so they get bigger year-end bonuses and they get to retire rich and but they they end up leaving uh, an over-leveraged corporation for their successors to take over now at the same time these same guys are selling their personal stock holdings mm-hmm. so they're using their their other people's money via their corporation to buy back the stock and pump it up and then they're selling um their own personal stock to the people buying the stock and what what's happening that you know what's, what what they're doing basically is um they're handing off their equities to the dumb money, you know, to corporate yeah. pension funds and to mutual funds and to individual investors who are the ones who will be burned when, um, when the buybacks eventually have to stop because corporations can't borrow any more money and the stock market loses all that support and tanks, you know, and the, the people that will be hurt, as always, are, are regular folks, you know, who, who weren't playing this game the way the insiders play it and right. who didn't understand what the dynamic was.
2: Yeah, it's um, it seems to be the same old thing every every time, every cycle. And, and the older you get, the more of these things you've seen and the more predictable it becomes, I think. Uh, well, Jay, wh- the, the thing uh, is, this is bigger than it's
5: ever been before, though. So yeah. we're, we're doing it on a vast scale now, much, much bigger than in, in times past.
2: Yeah, well, I think you're right. Um, it, it, what happens here, John, to the bond market? I mean, uh, how long can... Uh, can um, uh, can these interest rates stay subdued? And uh, that, that's one question. The other question is: Do you think that we are that the Fed is actually tapering? You know, it was a uh, Paul Craig Roberts, I think, that was writing a piece—a very, I think, a very strong argument uh, that in fact uh, that uh, in fact we may not be tapering at all. That basically money is being recycled. You know, I think it was um, something like two trillion dollars that was lent to Europe, or they they called it swaps, but it was really a loan to europe and now there was all of a sudden this huge amount of money uh treasury ownership that's coming through belgium i believe it is a tiny little country that there's no way in the world they would have the money the wherewithal to buy that level of treasuries Uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, it it, are we really getting tapering now john in your view and if so uh is what effect do you think it's having on the equity markets it doesn't seem to touch the equity markets much at all if at all
5: yeah jay i uh, one of the the scary things about tapering from the point of view of the government that it, it was that it, it might pull some of the support out from the financial markets and, and cause some kind of a financial crisis. So, uh, curiously, as the Fed has scaled back its own bond buying, in other words, it's pumped less and less money into the, uh, the U.S. banking system, mm-hmm. um, Belgium, as you said, has been buying almost dollar for dollar treasury bonds to, to make up for the fact that the Fed is buying fewer. So if you just take those two entities, the U.S. Fed and then whoever it is in Belgium that's, that's doing all this buying, it's a wash. Mm-hmm. So, so just looking at those two entries, no, uh, there, there's no um, tapering going on at all. You know, the same amount of treasuries are being bought up just by different parties and therefore, the same amount of cash is being pumped into the banking system worldwide. And that, in part, explains why stock prices haven't reacted to the fact that, uh, you know, otherwise we've got a very, fairly serious tightening going on on the part of the U.S. Fed. And normally that's associated with falling stock prices. Right, um, that it hasn't happened, and and you know the other part of it, of course, is that we what we already talked about, where corporations are still able to borrow very cheaply, and they're doing <laughs> it, and they're using that money to, to buy equities, and and there's also stories now about uh, some of the central banks around the world directly buying equities, just going yep. in and buying three percent of every stock on the, the Helsinki Stock Exchange, and and presumably the Standard and Poor's five hundred, and and um, and also in China and Japan, and and that of course support stock prices so you know to the extent that central banks have unlimited firepower in the sense that they can uh, print as many new pieces of currency as they want to if they're going to direct that to equities they they could elevate the equity markets for a really long time Um, we don't know how this works because we've never been here before we've never had the world's central banks directly intervening in the equity market in this way so no uncharted territory
2: yeah i mean i i guess some people think it may have started to happen a bit um Uh, During the 87 stock market crash or following that when the um, plunge protection team was created Mm -hmm. during Reagan's administration may have been uh, some of the first examples of it in the United States, it may have uh, sort of helped to keep the panic away and, and restore confidence in the market. Uh, so, in the short run, it might have uh, it might have worked out seemingly okay, but again, I think what people don 't really understand is the distortion to capital in the capital markets that 's caused by this artificial creation of money used for whatever reason. You know I have to think, John, during after two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, all of a sudden, the banks received trillions of dollars, and of course, in different ways, first of all, push the interest rates down and actually pay banks to hold hold money. Uh, and, and then our cost of funds, of course, go way down. And essentially, recapitalizing the banks by stealing by from other people, by by reallocating wealth, I guess, is a way of putting it. Picking, uh, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, and that seems to be what's been going on. But instead of capital, in my my view, of capital is what you don't consume. You're from your earnings or from your uh, from your wages or whatever. That is legitimate capital. But the banks can go out there and. And, and print uh, trillions of dollars that then is, is thrown into the market that essentially uh, dilute the honest capital that was, re, that was, that was uh, allocated. And not only that, when you have all that money going in, it's the malinvestment syndrome that the Austrians talk about, you have all these bad, bad things that are – you have bad decisions made with respect to uh, investments and so forth. So how far and how long can this thing – can this thing run, John? And um, you know, I see the uh, the BIS is critical now. Uh, they've come out and very critical of this quantitative easing and and uh, uh, artificially low interest rates. And uh, you know, it is almost like treason among bankers. I'm not sure why the BIS BIS all of a sudden has come out and said this. But do you think there might be some revamping uh, or some move towards a more responsible, uh, honest monetary policy somewhere in the future here before this thing breaks down or is it going to have to implode first? It probably has to implode first, Jay, just because so many people um, benefit so
5: tremendously from Mm -hmm. the status quo. Uh there are huge fortunes being made out there now, and, and fortunes are growing. <laughs> you know, oh, you yeah, take a fortune, sure, the one percent, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly, the, the, so the one getting, tenth
2: of one percent, especially. Yeah, and they're the
5: ones who would make the decision to yeah. uh, to to switch to a new monetary regime, and so right. it's they not have in their of the interest.
2: Yeah, they yeah, have control yeah. of the system. Right, exactly.
5: Yeah. And so so more than likely the market has to impose some kind of discipline on the, um, the the global financial system via some kind of a crash. And there are just so many ways they could happen now. You know, you and I have talked catalysts in the past. Yes. And once you start going down the list of stuff that could go wrong, that could cause a cascade failure of the whole system, uh, you can do that all day long. There are dozens of things just waiting to happen. And so there's no way to know which one of them will happen and in in which order you'll get the secondary and tertiary effects that that bring down the system. But um, we've reached the point where the numbers just don't work anymore. So something big has to happen to uh, yeah. to restore faith in the currencies. And, you know, we'll have to go back to some kind of a gold standard. Jim Rickards has an interesting theory that, uh, that, that there will be an intermediate step here where, where the IMF becomes the new global central bank and... Yes. Uh, the dollar and the euro and the yen and the yuan are all replaced by SDRs, Special Drawing yes. Rights at the yes. IMF, which which would just be an interim step because SDRs are only backed by fiat currencies, right? Yeah, so just it's, papers, it's just something, just another yeah, paper system exactly. that Sort
2: of instead of making the dollar, uh, the dollar or the euro, the two primary ones, it would mix a, a bunch of other lesser currencies probably in there as well. Yeah. So
5: and and so we would go on as before, borrow, borrowing as much money as we wanted to, and and just. Um, Doing it in SDRs instead of dollars and euros and yen. It wouldn't make any difference in the long run, but it might buy the global financial system a few years just because we're so easy to fool.
2: <laughs> you know, John, you, you, you talk catalyst, and uh, yeah. because we don't have an unlimited amount of time here, I want to move on to another topic. But you mentioned in an article that you wrote recently, gold bugs' hearts are beating faster. In that article, you mentioned there were several, I think four different individuals, I'd like to ask you uh, perhaps to summarize their their arguments why they think we're headed towards a bull market a return of the bull market in, in gold. But one of those was James Sinclair. He, he gave 30 reasons why uh, why this year is likely to be, or this summer is likely to be the turning point for gold. And many of those reasons are would be catalysts for the decline in the global economy, I think, as well, right? Yeah, he focused,
5: at least early in his list, on geopolitics mm-hmm. and the the effect on the dollar of, of the stuff that's going on in the Middle East and elsewhere. And... and um, One of them was that uh, the West is trying to impose sanctions on Russia over the Ukraine, and Russia is responding by dumping its dollars. Right. And uh, let that trend continue, and then uh, if major countries stop using the dollar for trading, for instance, oil... Then all of a sudden, all these central banks that have 60% of their reserves in dollars will need to readjust down to 30 or 20% or whatever. And you'll see massive dumping of dollars on the global financial markets. And there there may be 15, $15 trillion overseas now, outside of the U.S. money supply. And let those dollars come home because they're being dumped by central banks. And uh, you would see basically a hyperinflation in the U.S. And that's that's... What Sinclair is saying could very well happen in the not too distant future. Because you've got the Middle East, where Saudi Arabia is mad at us. They don't necessarily want to use dollars anymore. Um, Russia would love to be able to bypass the dollar. And so, you know, they have the ability to do that now. So the question is will they do it in the short run? Yeah,
2: and what, and what would be the impact? And I know Sinclair really talks about it being a a currency phenomenon. It's going to be uh, a loss of confidence in the dollar that likely would trigger something like that. That's certainly John Williams' thesis as well. It's really hard to see. Um, you know, how you could get sort of hyperinflation when you have all of this weakness in the economy. But I guess the answer is if the dollar really turns out to be worthless, then all of a sudden you could see why Rickards and others are thinking in terms of some kind of an intermediate step here to try to save the system.
5: Yeah, yeah. That, well, that would be the response of the, the world's governments if the dollar stopped functioning, functioning as a reserve currency. Right. Then it just they wouldn't, it
2: would just. Just pull a pull a bunch of them together and, and yeah. call them SDRs. Yeah, uh, exactly. okay, uh, John. So with re, uh, with respect to this article, and this of course is very near and dear to my heart as a gold bug. Uh, there were, in addition to James Sinclair, uh, you also mentioned uh, Richard Russell, uh, Grant Williams, and John Ng. Could you perhaps summarize uh, their arguments as well? Sure. Rich, Richard Russell is a technician, and he, he sees
5: gold. Uh, or he saw gold break through the fifty-day and two hundred-day moving averages, and to him, that's very bullish. and uh, And he predicts a uh, a short squeeze. In um, in gold, where the people who are short gold are are, just get steamrolled by its price going up and then they have to turn around, close out their positions, which is buying pressure in addition to the original buying pressure. And and that would send gold through the roof. Um, Grant Williams um, takes a look at the, the size of the mining sector and concludes that it's extremely small compared to the, the amount of global capital that could flow into mining stocks if gold and silver suddenly make them attractive. And uh, if even 1% of the amount of um, liquid capital that's in the world right now tried to flow into mining shares, um, it wouldn't be able to do it. There, there just aren't enough um, liquid mining stocks out there to accommodate that kind of money. And so they would gap up hugely. You know, you'd see this gigantic, very quick bull
2: market in mild stocks. All right, stock. All right then, John, my engineer is telling me. Just about uh, John Ng, if you could very quickly summarize his his thesis. Yeah, and now he, um, he believes
5: that a short squeeze is coming in gold as well and, and predicts... Um, um, days for the gold market in the Mm not-too-distant future where gold just gaps up. And so the conclusion in in all of this is that you've got to be in the gold market to participate in this. So you can't wait for it to happen because when it happens, it'll happen quickly. So take some positions now.
2: All right, John. uh, The money bubble, folks, read that, what to do before it pops. Uh, Both uh, James Turk and John Rubino explain. uh, And uh, go to John's website, uh, which is bubblecollapse.com. Some good things coming up there as well. Uh, Folks, uh, that's the end of the first hour of today, but there is a second hour. Go to jtaylormedia.com where David Jensen will pass along some very important observations about the palladium and silver markets uh, and anomalies that are in those markets, and he believes they're going to fuel the gold uh, markets as well. Also, uh, I'll be talking a little bit about my impressions of Portugal having just returned from that country uh, and uh, the problems that Europe is facing right now. Also, I will be talking about one of my favorite gold stocks, a new royalty company that I'm very, very keen on. Uh, So go immediately to jtaylormedia.com. I'll see you there.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt.